0: Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: Hey, good morning and welcome to, well, it's uh, actually the best day of the week. It's Thursday. And normally it's the second best day of the week, but tomorrow's a holiday, of course, for Good Friday. Markets are closed. So that means that everything is now moved forward to today. <laughs> so today we have just a ton of economic news that's coming out this morning. Um, of course, this follows up on the hills of CPI and PPI this week. We'll, we'll hit on that this morning with Michael Leibowitz, kind of talk about some of the inflation that came in. Um, is it the peak of inflation? Have we just seen the peak of in- inflation? We'll talk about that today. Because now we're going to start to do these year-over-year comparisons to strengthening inflation reports going back to April of last year as we get into the month of May. So, you know, it's now going to become more challenging for inflation to go higher, even though that means that prices remain the same. As we talked about before, you know, for instance, estimates for oil prices look to remain around $100 a barrel or so through the end of this year into next year. So as a consequence of that, if oil remains at $100 a barrel for a year, the inflation rate in oil prices is zero because we measure it on a year-over-year basis. So while there was no inflation in oil prices, the issue is is that gas prices are still more expensive for you. So you know, this is, this is the, the, fun, the funny math that we're gonna get into over the course of the next several months as we're talking about disinflationary trends in the economy. We're going to talk about weaker economic growth, the Fed's hiking rates to slow economic growth, which is now going to create what we call demand destruction. So they'll slow economic demand, of course, as prices begin to fall. I'm oh, sorry, as demand begins to fall, the buildup in inventories we have lead to a oversupply of goods that then have to be reduced in price to get sold. Same thing you're seeing with housing right now, right? Uh, For months and months and months, we've heard about this, this story about, oh, there's not enough supply of houses. That's why housing prices are so high, yada, yada, yada. Well, as soon as interest rates got to the point that people go, you know what, I can't afford to buy a house, all of a sudden supply is now starting to rise. We're up to about six months of supply of houses. That's probably going to be towards eight months over the course of the next a couple of months and normally around eight to nine months of supply of housing is generally where you're starting to talk about a recession in the economy so there's you know there's those factors that are going on that are going to be impacting consumption over the course of the next several months and as we get into next year this is going to start to lead to weaker economic growth lower prices less inflation so forth and so on so that's why you know we're we're likely close to or at the peak of inflation now there could be a few little lingering effects at the moment you know uh with oil prices an example gas prices etc uh food prices because of what's happening in the ukraine but that is going to get resolved eventually as well so when that does things are, are going to start to come back on so again no clear timeline as to how these things are going to start to work out but we'll talk more about that this morning um, interesting news this morning coming in this uh, right right at the crack of the show Elon Musk, of course, you know, the uh, uh, famous Tesla guy, has now launched a bid to buy Twitter. Now, remember, just recently, Twitter was trading around $20 a share or so, and I, I don't have the exact number, but he, uh, he bought in a 9.2% stake in Twitter. Stock was up about 16%, 18% over the next couple of days, so he's already making good money on his 9.2% stake. Now he's launched a $54.20 bid for Twitter to buy the whole thing. And and the statement is, is I'll unlock the potential of Twitter. I don't doubt it, right? But it's now turned his investment into a big winner because even if he doesn't get to buy the company at $54.20, the stock is trading right around $50 a share this morning. So another big jump in Twitter, up another 5% or so this morning on that news. So again, just further increasing his 10%, you know, roughly 10% stake that he's already got in the company. So, you know, as the biggest shareholder, this is obviously starting to really, uh, you know, create some interesting opportunities for Twitter. Will they, will Twitter sell to Tesla? Uh, you know, actually to Elon Musk, actually this is a bid from him. Uh, will they sell to him? You know, who knows? right? This is, the, this is going to be kind of a big thing. The interesting thing, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, is that when the f- announcement first came on that Elon Musk had bought an, a 9.2% stake in the company, the employees were losing their mind. In fact, they had to have, they were stressed on their no stress day off that they get every month. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're up in arms about the potential that Elon Musk could be opening up Twitter to free speech. You know, just can't have that in social media, stressing out these young millennials that, uh, you know, are, are so you know concerned about the spread of this information. It's going to be interesting to watch anyway. So but uh, Elon Musk this morning saying, you know what, I'm going to unlock that value of Twitter and we'll get it out there. And, you know, his, his view is that it should be free speech. That's it. So that's the whole purpose of this. We'll see what happens to see if he actually gets to buy it. But I just think it's kind of interesting news. You know, here's a guy, too, that you, this is this is the guy, Elon Musk, that Elizabeth Warren was going after for not paying taxes. And Of course, he is the single person that has paid the most taxes by an individual in history. <laughs> he paid $11 billion in taxes in one year. So imagine writing that check to the IRS. Do you think he gets like a special visitor pass if he goes to the IRS?
2: I think he's got his nameplate on a parking <laughs> spot right somewhere. next to the front door.
1: It's got to be somewhere, $11 billion. That's pretty amazing. Sure. Anyway, a uh, quick update on the markets yesterday. So, you know, we've talked about over the last couple of days, markets were very oversold. Now, you know, we're on a sell signal currently, so that still puts pressure on the markets. That doesn't, you know, we're not out of the woods just yet. Markets have gotten pretty overbought here. So it wasn't surprising that we got a sell signal along with a a bit of a decline in the market. So the good news, as we talked about yesterday, is that the market had broken the 50-day moving average. And we said that it was important that the market got back above the 50-day moving average this week. And that happened yesterday. So that's kind of confirming the hold of support right now, right at the 50-day moving average. And this is also a good good, uh, story here about managing stop losses in your portfolio we actually have a video on our website uh on our youtube channel talking about uh, managing stop losses and the point about this is is that a lot of people say well you know my stop loss is the 50-day moving average the 200-day moving average whatever it is and as soon as the stock breaks it they sell everything right the problem is, is that a lot of times these breaks can be what we call head fakes. And this is why you want to give these breaks a little bit of time to kind of work themselves out and confirm that the break is actually j- legitimate. So what you would want to see is a break of the 50-day moving average, a rally back to it that fails. That would confirm that now you've got a break of the 50-day. Now you execute your stops. Uh, this is the, But this is the problem with having automated stops where you kind of take the human... Uh, control out of it just a bit. Um, again, because you can see this where, you know, I had two days, the market stayed below the 50-day moving average. Now we're back above it. So, you know, now you're like, okay, well, now I got to be back in. I got to go buy everything I just sold. This is why you want to give these things a little bit of time to confirm themselves. Now, look, we're not out of the woods just yet. Like I said, we're still on a sell signal here and a pretty important sell signal from a high level. So I still think there's risk of downside here in the short term, particularly going into the end of the month. And as we get into May and the Fed starts talking about hiking rates, but we are oversold enough here. And this is the kind of key issue is that we could get a bit of a bounce here. It doesn't mean that we're going to make new highs or get back up to previous levels, but we are kind of set up here for at least a little short term bounce that you can use to kind of rebalance risk in your portfolio a bit. And that's and that's just part of that portfolio management process that we continue to talk about. But again, you know, always be careful with these very tight stop losses and things like that because you can get whipsawed uh, quite quickly, uh, particularly in this type of a market. So we'll come back, pick up with the inflation reports. We had CPI, PPI this week. What's it telling us and what does that mean for the Fed? And of course, how is that going to impact the economy and the markets later this year? I'll be back with Michael Liebwitz right after the break.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at RealInvestmentAdvice.com.
2: We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premium? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Rathlett for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at RealInvestmentAdvice.com for our our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Real The
0: Real Investment Show.
1: Headline this morning, right now, on CNBC. Inflation hits 40-year high. So Sounds pretty scary, right? I mean, we're 40 year highs on inflation, though, you know, and this is, uh, you know, now got people fearful that, you know, the dollar is going away. We're, you know, going back into the, uh, cave stone age now and, you know, bringing back flashes of memories of, of, of the, you know, high prices in the seventies where we all had gas lines and people are putting propane tanks in the back of pickup trucks, <laughs> you, you name it, right? Um, not going to happen. Um for a variety of very different reasons this economy today is not the economy of the 1970s very different backdrops that will that will impede that from happening but again you know not surprising of course with the inflation prints we saw this week CPI up to 8.6 percent and PPI up fairly sharply yesterday as input costs into companies are continuing to increase you know one of the things that you know, we look at on a fairly regular basis is the differentials between the PPI, the producer price index and the CPI index. And that spread is one of the largest on records. And what that means is, is that producers aren't able to pass on the entirety of the increases to consumers. They're having to bottle some of that up. So, you know, that it doesn't mean they're not passing some of it on because obviously you're paying higher food prices, gas prices, everything else. But not all of it is able to be passed on so that's going to impact corporate profit margins later this year could see weaker earnings and in fact if you take a look at the earnings between different sectors there's basically negative revisions in earnings in about every sector and if it wasn't for the massive increase in in earnings expectations for the energy sector you know, we would have much different view of what earnings look like overall because there's such a large increase of, in earnings expectations for energy companies. It's really masking the downgrade in earnings estimates for all the other sectors. And and, and so this is something that we're going to have to pay attention to. You know, not everything, you know, is represented by the S&P 500. In other words, you know, we've talked about this earlier this year is that if you take a look at the S&P, you know it's down about you know four five six seven percent for the year. Underneath the surface, it's a very different story. As to what's going on with a lot with the with the bottom four hundred ninety companies, is <laughs> a very different story of what's happening with the top ten. Anyway, to talk a little bit about inflation this morning, uh, of course, and what does this mean for the Fed? Now the Fed is on deck to hike rates at their next meeting in May. Michael Lee, was joins this morning. Mike, how are you?
3: Good. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah. So what was your takeaway from uh, CPI, PPI this week?
3: Uh, good news, bad news. So the headline numbers, so the numbers that make the front page of your local paper were high. You know, I mean, they're just, they're kind of shocking. If we would have been talking about these numbers a year ago, we'd say, no way. We're not going to run eight, what, 8.6% inflation. But when you dive into the numbers, there is a little bit of hope that we're starting to peak. So one of the numbers the Fed likes the most is what they call core CPI. Core takes out all the things that me and you consume every day. It's no food, no energy. So they basically take out the food and energy, which are probably the two things that we spend money on every day. And core CPI was only up 0.2 tenths of a percent for the month of March. So if you annualize that, you're running at, you know, two and a half percent inflation. Mm-hmm. And that was down from 05 the prior month, which is, you know, roughly 6% inflation. So there is some sign that we are seeing a little bit of a retreat in prices. Then PPI came out yesterday, and that was much higher than expected for both the core number, the headline number, all aspects of it.
1: Right. And that and so, kind of goes back to my point. If, if PPI is hot and CPI is starting to maybe show some signs of peaking, whatever, Um, You know, that kind of goes back to that point again, is that that producers are having to eat a lot of that inflation.
3: Well, that's I think that's the question that we're going to have to see answered over the next few months. Can they pass that on? Did did PPI rise? And now will we see CPI rise as the as the people selling products to consumers raise their prices? Or is this gap between PPI and CPI going to going to exist, which is basically so it's basically will the consumer pay for it or will the retailers pay for it? And that has yet to be answered. But my guess is that consumers are starting to feel the pinch. Mm -hmm. We've seen revolving credit credit card debt jump. It's up uh, roughly 14% over the last 12 months. That compares to about 4 or 5% from what we're used to pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that consumers are buying less as far as volume because they have to spend more to get less. And they're using credit card debt. And until a couple of months ago, they were refinancing their houses mm-hmm. to do that. But that that ship has sailed. So now... It's really credit card debt. And if we see keep seeing credit card debt exploding higher, that's just another signal to us that consumers are in trouble and that they are using their credit cards as a form of wages.
1: Uh, well, and again, that's, you know, that's kind of what you would expect to see uh, to some degree anyway, because you know, we, we run a, uh, a chart. and I've actually got it coming out in a report here in the next uh, couple of days is the we go back to 19 the 1970s and we look at the cost of the median cost of living back in the 1970s and we inflation adjust that median cost of living to present and look at the differential between disposable personal incomes savings rates and credit card debt and what it takes to sustain that standard of living what's interesting is and you can all you can see the exact break Starting in late 1990, early 2000, the amount of disposable personal income and savings was declining to the point that it was beginning to really require some additional debt just to maintain that, that kind of median standard of living. And then very interestingly, at 2008, when we had the financial crisis and everything kind of shut down at that point, that's where it immediately fell off the cliff. And now there's about a $16,000 a year gap that people are having to fill through, you know, credit card debt and, and other forms of, of support just to maintain that standard of living. So, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, this continues to degrade itself. A lot of it's because of, you know, in 2008, we started really accelerating the level of debt that we were taking on, student loan debt, housing debt you know, all those type of all those other types of debt structures. And the consumers just getting further and further behind the curve on being able to support their standard of living. So not surprising here with prices going up, they're really having to go back into credit card debt to try to make that ends meet. But you know, those prices are now going up, the cost of servicing that debt is going up, that's taking away more of the disposable income. And there's a limit to their credit cards. I mean, you know, they're going to run out of additional, you know, once you max out your credit cards, that's pretty much it. And then the question is, then that's where really consumption takes a hit because now there's no alternative.
3: And to that point, coming out in today's commentary in exactly one hour, uh, one hour, five (laughs) minutes, we actually show a chart of real wages Mm -hmm. and they're down, I think it's what, 3.8% for the year. So that means that even though you may have gotten a 5% raise, you can actually buy less with your money by about 3.8% than you could a year ago. So it's not really, you got a raise, you actually got a pay cut by three and a half percent. So the question is, what are you not going to buy? Or are you going to take on credit card debt? Now, as you were talking about credit card debt, I was thinking about something interesting. A few years ago, pre-pandemic 2018, 2019, I have, first of all, I have really good credit. I've made all my, I pay my credit card every month. I pay it in full. I don't have any late fees. I, I, you know, I've, I'm kind of what the credit card actually. I'm what the credit card companies don't want. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I pay it. There's not really a credit risk as far as they can see from my record. Uh, and one of my credit card companies cut my limit in half. Mm-hmm. And I called up, and it, it, it's still a good enough number. And I have a couple cards, so it didn't it didn't bother me. But I called up, and I said, Why did you cut my credit card number? And they said, We're cutting them across the board. This was Capital One. This is a big credit card company. Mm -hmm. So prior to the pandemic, prior to even that economic weakness before the pandemic, credit card companies had pulled back, and we had read other reports of other big banks doing the same thing. They were trying to reduce their risk. So now, as we go into this, people are starting to pile up debt on their credit cards. Even though they're getting raises, even though they have jobs, they're not keeping up with inflation. And like you said, Lance, gonna, some people are going to start hitting their maxes and then they have no choice but to reduce their spending. And right. I think we're starting to get to the point in that cycle that we're going to start seeing that over the next six months. And today we get uh, retail sales data in about an hour. Now, the number could be really good. But what we have to be careful about is how much of that is volume and how much is inflation. Right. So if it's up 5% for the year... That's not that good because inflation's running what eight and a half percent, eight point six percent.
1: let me explain that real quick just so that people you know kind of understand what you're saying here because this is a really, really important point when it comes to retail sales. We measure retail sales in dollar transactions. so Mike goes to the store and he spends twenty dollars. we measure that purchase of of food as a twenty dollar purchase now, you know, the, and the best way to really kind of measure this is, is you, it's hard to tell when Mike goes to the store to, to shop. He may buy a few extra things this time that he didn't buy last time. But when it comes to filling up your gas tank, and this is we always use this example to talk about retail sales because when you fill up your gas tank, there's only so many gallons in the gas tank, right? Um, it only holds so much. So pretty much you fill up the same amount roughly, give or take, every single time. And uh, so when the retail store... That sells you the gasoline reports their sales of gasoline. They report it in dollar volume, uh, and and dollars. So we so, so Mike spent thirty dollars a week you know, on gas. You know six months ago he's now spending forty dollars a week on gas today because of inflation. He's spending ten dollars more in gas, but he's not buying any more gas. But retail sales went up because he's now spending forty dollars for the same amount of gas he was buying you know six months ago that's the problem with retail sales is that we measure it in dollar transactions we don't measure it in volume sold so to mike's point it's a very and it's a very important point if the rate of retail sales is not keeping up with the rate of inflation retail sales are actually weaker and that's the important thing to take away from this we'll come back we'll pick up on this a lot more to get into this morning about where we are and more importantly the problem the fed is about to run into Don't go away. Be right back on the show with Michael Leibowitz, right here on The Real Investment Show.
0: The Real Investment Advice Blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com.
2: We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premium? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratley for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties, Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn. To avoid the pitfalls and permanent Penalties of Medicare, realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your Lance Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me, of course. And we're talking a little bit about inflation, the Fed, I want to show you this chart here real quick of the the consumer spending gap that Mike and I were talking about in the last segment, and this is this is the the chart that you know I'm, I'm speaking of in particular because you know here let me make this a little bigger. Um, you know what this is showing you is this kind of standard of living that people have been you know, working with now for quite some time. And and going all the way back to the 1960s, you know, there was plenty of of headroom uh, and the cost of living between where it is and what the ability of people to to live on is. And they weren't having to tap on debt. And this is the, the key point about this is back in the 70s, you know, there wasn't a lot of household debt. And, and Michael remember this as well. Our parents didn't have credit cards to a large degree. They just weren't a thing. And, you know, most people, they lived in a fairly moderate house, you know, three bedrooms, one and a half bath at most, right? Um, it, there just wasn't this big need of excess that, you know, we kind of have today for individuals. And, and so over the course of time, as we, uh, you know, deregulated the financial industry and uh, and banks figured out they could give everybody and their dog a credit card and they could make a whole lot more money, and then of course advertisers said, "Hey, guess what? Everybody's got credit cards. Let's really sell them some stuff." We shifted the whole economy from a manufacturing conservative base to this service based industry that takes on a tremendous amount of debt to to make a or to live a lifestyle that really exceeds the income that we have going on and this is why now we have this big gap between the ability to pay for that standard of living and we have to use debt and this is why to the point we're talking about a second ago you've got surging levels of credit card debt now you know back to mike Liebowitz here um you know this you know this the the important part about this of course and and Mike, as you were talking about a second ago, is that when we take a look at retail sales and consumption, and that's 70% of the economy. I mean, so you know, GDP is basically consumption. That's that's what it is. You know, when we talk about business investment or import exports, those don't really move the needle on the GDP calculation that much relative to what happens with consumption. And the more that interest rates go or the more that interest rates go up. Um, which now we're going to be talking about with the Fed and the more that inflation and prices rise, the less ability that consumers have to consume, which is that driver of the economy.
3: Lance, there's also a psychological component to all this. Mm -hmm. People are getting deeper in debt. They're going to a restaurant now and it's 100 bucks for something that's not that special anymore. And I think people are starting to pull back. Maybe we don't need to do this. Maybe we don't need to spend money on that. And I think we're also gonna start seeing that effect because they just got a raise. They just got a nice raise, a five, six, seven percent raise and they're already starting to fall behind again and they don't feel like they can ask for another raise. Mm -hmm. And they just got a new job because they quit their old job and their new job is paying a little bit more. They can't go in a month into their job and ask for more money. So, you know, I think people did what they could. They got raises. They asked for raises. They got new jobs. And inflation just kept going, kept rising faster than most people' wa- most people's wages. And then, you know, they see the price of gasoline, that's 80 bucks to fill up your tank, you know, gone. And it's not like you get much pleasure out of that $80 versus going to a restaurant or, you know, mm-hmm. certain consumables. So, so there's a psychological aspect. I think that's what we're just starting to deal with now, is that there are no more checks from the government, right? right. The, the wages aren't going to keep rising at at, at at the rate they're rising. And even at the rate they're rising, they're not rising quick enough. So even if they rise at five and inflation's eight, they're falling behind. And I think people are starting to realize that. Now they have larger credit card debt, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a drag on... On consumption, and again, like you said, Lance, that's almost two-thirds mm. of economic growth. So, if you want to know why why we care so much about data like retail sales, like the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, various consume, you know, how do we feel? How much are we spending? That's why economists spend so much time on the consumer, because all the other aspects, like government spending, is 10 to 15 percent. There's imports, exports. There's there's other aspects to it. But the big one, if you can get the big one right, you can most likely do a pretty good job predicting GDP. That's right. And that's consumption.
1: Yep. And, and again, you know, when we take a look at and, and again, when we talk about consumption as part of GDP. And, and to your point, Mike, we talk about personal consumption expenditures. That's the that's the component that we look at for that two thirds of the GDP calculation of personal consumption expenditures retail sales make up almost 40 percent of pce so retail sales to your point is a very important part of the entire gdp calculation because it is so inherently important and that's what we're shopping for online offline you know everywhere else but this is but, you know, and, and, and again, as we take a look going forward this year, this is where, you know, and again, you and I are having this uh, kind of this, you know, back office bet over here about, you know, how long the Fed's going to hike rates before, you know, they cause a problem and have to start bailing out markets again. You know, I thought two interesting notes about this. One is J.P. Morgan reported earnings yesterday, huge loan loss revision uh, a reserve that they put on their books that impacted earnings. You know, and this we talked about this before back during the financial uh, during the 2020 pandemic. They had a big loan loss reserve set up and then they really boosted earnings by basically putting that back into their earnings bucket. So even though their earnings weren't growing that much, it looked like they had a huge earnings growth simply by reversing that loan loss provision. Uh, we're seeing them do it again and we're not it doesn't even seem like right now we're in trouble and they're already preparing for potentially credit card defaults and and bad loans to come in.
3: Yeah, I think that caught a a few people by surprise. Mm -hmm. They took their, you know, they added, what was it, about $900 uh, to their loan loss reserves. They're basically saying, we're putting away a little money because we think defaults are going to rise here. And it's the prudent thing to do, and hats off to JP Morgan. It came at the expense of their earnings per share. And the stock was down a little bit, and the stock has been trading poorly over the last uh, few months because I think the market is expecting more, more mm-hmm. of these type of reserve increases or actual losses. Uh, the other thing that the banks, is, you know, J.P. Morgan are dealing with is the yield curve. And the yield curve is very interesting. We've talked about this a lot. When we were on it two, three weeks ago, Lance, we were talking about the yield curve inverting so that the yield on shorter term bonds, like the two-year bond, was higher than the yield on the 10-year bond. And that is kind of the first inning of the recession signal, right? The, the next inning, the one to be more careful about is when it uninverts. So when the 10 year yield rises back above the two year and back in 2019, the curve inverted for about a cup of coffee for about 20 (laughs) seconds. And next thing you know, six months later or so we were in a recession. Now the pandemic caused that. So it's hard to know if we would have had a recession, but if you go back, you know 40 50 years every time the curve inverted so every time the yield on short bonds was higher than the yield on long bonds and then uninverted we went into a recession within you know 6 9 months yeah let me let me so, let me
1: say something about that because that's a really really important point that people need to understand because there's so many headlines right now first of all there's nothing to worry about all the yield curves uninverted yesterday because of the move in bonds be careful with that right because we are we are at the very early stages of an inversion and the fed hasn't started hiking rates normally the inverted yield curve comes when the fed is hiking rates and tightening their balance sheet that type of thing that's when normally you get the inversion so we haven't even started that yet that starts really kind of next month in earnest uh so be careful with this uninversion here uh in the short term because it's you know, the headlines already started saying, well, the, the yield curve is now not inverted anymore, so all worries are off. It's all fine. Go back in the market. Jim Cramer noting that we have now put in a very important bottom for the NASDAQ, be long growth stocks. So take that with, with what it is. But here's the point I want to make, and this is the, the really important point that, that Mike is saying here. The inversion of the yield curve is not what causes a recession, Right. It's not the oh, the yield curve inverted, now we have a recession. The inverted yield curve caused the recession. That's not what it's saying. And you know, and what Mike's point was, he said, you know, would we have had a recession without the pandemic shutdown in March of 2020? The answer is yes. May have been later on, but we were already there's plenty of signs that were already occurring outside of the inversion of the yield curve that said we were potentially heading in, you know, towards a recession or an economic slowdown. You know, sometime in the course of 2020, 2021, at some point, we were going to get there anyway. The pandemic just, you know, sped it up a lot. But importantly, whenever the yield curve is inverted historically, we never know what the cause of the recession is. It's not the, the yield curve that caused the recession the yield curve re- inversion in 2007 didn't cause the lehman bankruptcy in 2008 i mean it's you know the the lehman bankruptcy is what shocked the economy and it and it froze credit markets and that's what led to the recession what the inverted yield curve tells you is that there's the economy is ripe for a recession it's It is weak enough that if there's an unexpected exogenous event that occurs, the economy and the structure of the economy and what's happening in the economy is not strong enough to withstand any type of big negative shock that occurs. And this goes all the way back through history. It's always after the fact we look back and go, oh, yeah, the inverted yield curve told us a recession was coming, but the cause of the recession is always something other than the yield curve whether it's the dot-com crash or whether it's the 87 91 recession whether it was the the 1975 recessions you know those type of things always something oil embargoes etc it's always a shock that trips up the economy and contracts it into a recession be right back after the break we'll finish up with Michael Leibowitz don't go away
0: news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com.
2: We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare. Avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. RealInvestmentAdvice.com.
0: The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back. <clears throat> Getting ready to wrap up the show this morning with Michael Leibowitz. This morning, the uh, most uh, another big chunk of criminal enterprises report earnings this morning, PNC- Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, State Street Bank, and, of course, the the kingpin of the criminal enterprises, Wells Fargo, uh, also reporting this morning. So, you know, keep a watch out. The mafia is on parade today. Um, Mike, welcome back to the show this morning. So, you know, Thank you. So talking a little bit about, you know, inflation here. Now, the, the big risk. Well, go ahead.
3: I was going to say, back to our conversation, there's something pretty important worth thinking about. When we were in this situation, so the yield curve inverted, economic growth is slowing, typically, and this was my article from yesterday, typically what would start happening is the Fed would have already had raised rates by half a percent, one percent, two percent, maybe three percent, and they were starting to talk about, at this point in the cycle, you know what, we're probably getting close to the end of the rate hike cycle, we may end by July, and then we'll see what, maybe we'll lower rates. At the same time, the the government would say, you know what, let's start thinking about a small fiscal stimulus bill to kind of revitalize the economy a little bit. Neither one of those is going to happen this time,
1: Yeah.
3: right? That's that's why this time is a little different than what we've seen in the past. The Fed with 8.6% inflation, cannot start doing QE immediately and lowering rates. First of all, rates are only at point at a quarter of a percent. There's nowhere for them to lower. In the past, they were much higher, and they did have room to lower, to or at least to talk about lowering. Everyone will call their bluff right now if they talk about lowering rates. Right. And the government can is not going to get anything through Congress right now, at least until the next election. Regarding fiscal stimulus, a mm. uh, uh, meaningful fiscal stimulus, and then we get past November, and there's a decent likelihood that the Republicans have at least one or two of the houses, if not both, and then it becomes much, much harder to get any kind of fiscal stimulus bill by.
1: Well, so uh, that's so, that. No, having said that, and you're absolutely correct, it's going to be very difficult. Let's just assume you know the the outcome that. Republicans take back the House and the Senate. Right now, you would say it's now impossible for you know anybody to pass stimulus at that point. But as soon as the economy gets into enough of a of, a, of an issue, and we're now talking about a recession and job layoffs, Republicans will be passing checks to households and, again, just like everybody else. Of course, yes. And, but I just want to I just want to make sure that point is out there: is that there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats anymore. It's simply a function of trying to keep their jobs. So as soon as something happens. Everybody's a Democrat today,
3: And I agree 100%, but I think it's going to take more to get that spending. Yeah. It's going to take more to get the Fed to go to action versus trying to slowly lean into it and what they call a soft landing. Yeah. So a soft landing in central bank parlance means that <laughs> you were running 3 4% economic growth for a while, and that's a little too much. It's more than the economy can handle. So you're going to tone it down, soft land it down at 2%. You're going to run at two percent for a while and let everything kind of normalize, work itself out.
2: The yeah. problem
3: is the the plane doesn't have any landing gear and there's no <laughs> more engine and the no more gas in the engine. So, yeah,
2: and the pilot
1: is from airplane is the one that you blow up, so you know that's that's the problem. You know, but you know and this isn't it. But it's an interesting point you bring up. We're talking about two percent, you know, we you know three percent, four percent economic growth is too hot, right? So now we got to get back to 2% two. Two prior to 2000, 2% two economic growth was considered by the Federal Reserve and central banks to be what we call escape velocity. In other words, the economy had to grow at a rate faster than 2% just to replace the population growth in the labor market. So as people were coming into the labor uh, into the labor force, you know, through you know, growing up and be, you know, becoming of age to work or immigration the it requires a growth rate of greater than 2% to absorb that population increase into the workforce. You know, we used to run at 8% rates of economic growth back in the 70s. We were running at 6 and, you know, 5 and 6% rates in the in 1980s and 1990s. We were running at 4% growth in early 2000 since then we just keep getting down now we're just hoping we can run at two percent and this is a function of all that debt overhang that we have in the economy we just can't afford the economy to run at three and four percent growth absorb population growth create economic prosperity because that brings interest rates up if you have four percent economic growth and we can't afford it with the debt that's the, the 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 big trap we've gotten ourselves into
3: and that's a huge thing lance you're talking about because for the last month or two you've shown one chart after another of treasury yields and every time they hit this line that you mm-hmm. a lot of people would say randomly drew yields <laughs> fell back down it's technical mumbo jumbo exactly some people would it's, say. Voodoo. it's not technical mumbo jumbo the problem is every time rates increase it weighs too heavily on the economy and causes the economy to slow down and then yields fall back down. So you can draw that line however you want, but the bottom line is that yields pop up to lower highs. They don't go as high as they did prior, and they go down to lower lows. They go below where they were prior. And that's not because Lamps is drawing his technical channels and his logarithmic scales and <laughs> you know, all the all the you know, what what we would do on stocks looks like technical, you know, it's very technical. It's not. It, it's truly fundamentals behind it. And whether it hits that line, goes slightly above it, doesn't quite get to it, it's telling you the same story that there's too much debt in the system, that it's becoming a bigger and bigger burden. And then we have the pandemic where we just added another six trillion of debt in a year and a half mm-hmm. versus what would have taken five or six years. So you speak, you make that line. That that we've drawn even sturdier, even darker, you know, a thicker line, because as it goes through that line or approaches that line, the economic pain, economic pressure becomes more so than it was the last time we hit that line, even though that line was at a higher level.
1: Right. And so, you know, real quick here, and we got to wrap up the show, and we, you know, we keep, you know, saying we're going to get there. The Fed. Now starting to now set the hike rates. The expectations are that they're going to hike rates by fifty basis points. Now here's an interesting kind of side note. Just in the last few days, even with the interest the the inflation print we saw yesterday, the two year Treasury rate declined here a bit. Now there's a very there's a historical very close correlation between the two year Treasury rate and the Fed funds rate, and the and the two year Treasury rate leads the Fed funds. Um, and it's basically what the two-year Treasury is telling you is where they expect the Fed funds to hike, uh, the Fed to hike rates to. And it's interesting that we're starting to see the two-year Treasury begin to fall in terms of its rates, saying that, hey, you know, w- you know, we thought the Fed was going to hike to 3%. Now it maybe looks like it's only going to get to 2.5%. I suspect that as we get further down the road, that rate's going to come down even more as the realization you know, comes to play that the economy's slowing down too quickly, there's too much pressure on the economy because of inflation, and the Fed isn't going to be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect.
3: And I think that's part of it. And, you know, the question comes back to inflation.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. It it becomes a little bit easier for inflation to level off here. But we just saw 1.2% inflation in a month, one month. Right. And when we go back and look a year ago, inflation was running 0.6%, 0.7%. So if we keep running at 1.2%, we're going to see the annual rate of inflation keep increasing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's scary enough if it stays flat, right? Prices right. went up 8.6% last year, and they didn't go up last month. A lot of people say that's a great sign inflation is abating. It, what it really means is we're staying at very high levels, which... It's likely what's going to happen and and the bond market will cheer when that happens and yields will drop sharply. But there's a potential, especially when we start thinking about housing prices, rental prices, which are poorly captured. Mm -hmm. Right. Every measure of rent or house is up 20 percent year over year and the CPI is up 4 percent. So it might be that that, you know, the way the, the the BLS calculates it is what it is and that's going to be the peak. It could also be that cap catches up, and that's about a third of CPI, and we may have a few more months Mm. of inflation surprises to the upside, which forces the Fed to do what they keep talking about doing, and it's going to force the bond market to reevaluate what those very short-term yields are doing. And probably, if that were to happen, basically reinvert the curve
1: right well and, and you know a couple of you know important factors here you know higher interest rates go both by the fed and on the 10-year treasury 30-year mortgages we're already seeing housing prices come down in markets um, because people are simply getting priced out of them and and again we we talked about this on the show earlier this week if if you can't afford the difference in a payment between a four percent rate and a five percent rate on a home you can't afford the house to start with right the you know but as as consumers right we don't buy houses we can afford we buy houses because it's like oh i want this five hundred thousand dollar house because it's so cool um you know but i can't afford it unless you know interest rates are three percent five percent mortgage rates are still very cheap but even small incremental changes in those rates impact the buying the the buying ability by both price as well as psychology because a lot of people are used to interest rates being low. And they're like, okay, I'll just wait to buy my house because I'll just wait for rates to come back down again. And they'll be proved right eventually. So patience will win this game. But to your point, you know, we could certainly see higher prices here for, for a few more months that will potentially lure the Fed into hiking rates even more aggressively than they might have otherwise and really starting to cause a problem later on this year. And, and I think the, the risk of a Fed policy mistake is now – much higher than I think most people expect.
3: Right, right. And it doesn't mean they won't make a mistake, and they may have to make a mistake even if they know it. And that's this time is different, and I think that's the way you have to think about this. It's different than what we've seen for the last 40 years. All right,
1: you got two seconds. Comments on Musk buying Twitter. What do you think?
3: Hallelujah. (laughs) He'll open up the airways. Anyone can say what they want to say.
1: (laughs) Interestingly enough, he's talking about taking it private and uh, you know getting it out of the public market. That'd be also very interesting as well. A private Twitter. All right. Be right. Uh, we will wrap up the show for the day. Stick around. Our three minutes on markets and money will come out. Markets are closed tomorrow, so this is the last trading day of the week. So I want to wish you a very happy Easter. And we will see you back here next week. Have a great day.
0: If I had a little money, it's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.